It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Bugsy Siegel is forever connected with Las Vegas and the Flamingo Hotel, but he had another important role to play nationally as my guest, former New York Times editor and Time Magazine reporter Michael Gunnell points out in his new book, A Brotherhood Betrayed. It's The Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc. It's published by Minotaur Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Gunnell, go to michaelcunnell.com and you can follow him on Twitter at Michael Connell. And Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why did you decide to focus on Murder, Inc., which is the enforcement arm of the commission, and we'll get to it during the show, but why did you decide to focus on that element of the larger picture of organized crime? Yeah, I mean, a couple, a couple of reasons. One is that Murder, Inc., the demise of Murder, Inc., leads to one of the enduring mysteries about the mob. Abe Reles, who was nicknamed Kid Twist, who was the main man at Murder, Inc., after he had turned state's evidence, he had spent, well, let me put it this way, he had spent his entire adult life murdering informants. And then at the end of his life, he became the greatest informant of all, and then died under mysterious circumstances. Nobody has ever figured out who was responsible for his death. He went out the window of a, of a hotel room in Coney Island where he was being kept under layers of police protection. He went out the window as if to escape, but nobody really believes that he was um, escaping. So somebody threw him out the window. The question is who? So I gravitated, I gravitated to that question. Also, I would say that when Americans think about the mob, they think about the godfather. They think about the old Sicilian and um, Neapolitan gents who came over and brought all the old-fashioned practices of old-world mafia with them. This this story, which takes place in the 30s, is very different. It's the next generation of mobsters, and I don't think people understand how really different they were and much more organized and much, much deadlier. And you mentioned in your book, you dispatched the, what you call the mustache peats right away in the beginning of the book before you get into the, that current or the next generation of, of murderers and thieves, etc. Yeah, the mustache peats was the nickname for the old guys who, for the most part, lived in, in downtown Manhattan in, in what we now call Little Italy. They weren't really interested in being American. They fled Italy because they were going to be prosecuted in Italy for, for murder and other crimes. And at that time, the U.S. did not have um, an extradition treaty with Italy. So they could come here and stay as long as they wanted. They didn't really want to drink beer or watch baseball. They just wanted to be carry on as Italians in, in America. And then the, that, next, that next generation of, of um, mobsters, which included Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano, they wanted to operate in a different way, and their first step was to, was to kill off all the old uh, mustache peaks. 
And they formed a, what you call in the book and what they call themselves the commission. So it was almost a corporate setup for organized crime. You could have organized crime in small clusters, but this was a national commission. It was a national commission. Um, what happened is that during Prohibition, the mob made money hand over fist, piles and piles of money, almost without trying, because they controlled all the bootlegging, they controlled the speakeasy, speakeasies, they controlled prostitution, they controlled gambling. Prohibition, nobody was legally allowed to drink, but Americans did drink. And so the mob very easily filled this universal need for saloons and bars and restaurants. When Prohibition ended, the mob knew that they had, or this next generation of mobsters, they knew that they had to operate in a, in a different way. And so those top mob lords, led by Lucky Luciano, put together a nationwide confederacy of local mobs. It was almost like McDonald's with local franchises. There were mob operations everywhere that worked on their own autonomously, but they were part of this larger um, nationwide confederacy that was known as the Commission. And then, of course, the famous enforcement arm. I, what I like about your book is it not only from a historical point of view traces the growth of the commission and then Murder, Inc., but also puts it in a certain time and place that I thought I knew enough about the mob's history, but you certainly filled in a lot of the gaps in there. And in, in fact, your protagonist, I had never even heard of until you wrote the book. Yeah, Abe Reles, uh, his nickname was Kid Twist, was the head of Murder, Inc., this enforcement arm that you mentioned, uh, their job was to kill all the informants. They did so methodically and in a business-like manner. The, the idea was that if they killed all the informants, anybody who could testify against them in court, then they could never be prosecuted. No witnesses, no convictions. And uh, that worked that worked pretty neatly for about a decade until, until Abe Reles, the man who had spent his entire adult life killing informants, then became the biggest informant of all. It would seem to me in reading your book that the foot soldiers, the ones that actually work for Murder, Inc., you would think they'd have an inkling that that would be the end result for them as well as their victims because they're around to testify against the, the upper uh, echelon, so to speak, or the upper levels. So you would think that they would not want to get involved in that just to protect their own lives to begin with. Well, the, 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 the um, gunmen and the foot soldiers, uh, the drivers who, who were responsible for stealing cars and then driving them during murders and, and robberies, they were... They were um, they were captives in, in, a, in a sense. They often um, borrowed money from the mob, and then the mob would charge them exorbitant uh, interest, and they, would, were, they were desperate to pay it off. They knew what happened to men who did not pay off their debts to the mob. So they paid it off by, uh, by working for the mob. Nobody got, nobody got out. Almost nobody got out of this, 
out of this uh, operation. Some tried. Almost nobody got out alive. I can think of one who did, and that was a a uh, a gunman named Big Gangi Cohen, who just disappeared into the woods after a murder that he participated in. Nobody saw him for years. And then he showed up in movies. He went to Hollywood, and he got bit parts in movies. Amazing. <laughs> and then, but he gets noticed. You'd think that they would go after him at that point, since they, he was on the silver screen. Well, they did go after him, sure. The mob rushed out. Once the mob saw him in a, in a, noticed him in a movie, they went out to try and get him. But the police had also noticed him in a movie. And so he was, he was um, tried and acquitted, even though he, in fact, was guilty. And he went back to Hollywood and spent a very long and lucrative career playing the body double for the character Hoss in the TV show Bonanza. So even though he was found not guilty, why did the mob leave him alone after that? Well, by then, um, the mob was not, was not defunct, but the mob was pretty busted at that, at that point. I mean, Abe Rellas was testifying. Uh, Abe Rellas had turned state's evidence. He had testified against um, against many of his former associates. And then World War II came along, and, you know, all bets were off during World War II. Yes, there's an interesting chapter in that about how the docks were protected during World War II because of Luciano and his cooperation with the federal authorities. Exactly. Lucky Luciano was in jail in upstate New York, and naval intelligence had some grave concerns about the security of of the docks in New York after a French ocean liner that was being converted into a troop carrier burned and sank. So intelligence officials went to Lucky Luciano in jail and made a deal with him. And he called upon his, his union, corrupt union contacts in New York to secure the waterfront, and they did. And he is also believed to have helped with the invasion of Sicily and mainland Italy during World War II. And as a result, he was unexpectedly paroled after World War II and uh, sent back to Italy on the condition that he never return. And uh, he spent the rest of his life in Naples. One last question about Lucky Luciano. And that is, was it necessary for him to give orders to the dock people to protect the docks when wouldn't it be in their own self-interest to be defending the docks against the Nazis or other Axis powers because it would threaten them, their own hold on it, if the, if the Nazis won? or the Axis one? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a really good answer for that. I guess what I would say is is that if Lucky Luciano, who, who, even though he was in jail, still ran a large portion of the mob from his jail cell, if he wanted something done on the docks, it was done. So there was no, there was no uncertainty about it if he was part of, the, part of the effort. Gotcha. Briefly, you and I both mentioned Benjamin Siegel, Benny Siegel. How did he fit into the national structure of the commission? At what level was he considered? Well, he was at the very top level. He would, he would have been among those gangsters 
who grew up together on the Lower East Side. And of course, he went to California and um, later to Las Vegas. A lot of money coming up on the West Coast at that time. He was His job was to go out there and build the racketeering operations in, in on the West Coast um, as the movie industry and other industries cropped up there. When, when Abe Reles um, turned state's evidence, and it was clear that he was going to testify against his former friends, one of the people that was really in trouble was, was Bugsy Siegel. And in fact, Abe Reles was flown under heavy guard several times to Los Angeles to meet with the district attorneys in Los Angeles. When Abe Reles was being held in protective custody, it is known that Bugsy Siegel came back to New York to try and organize the effort to kill him. And there were many attempts to try and get to him. It wasn't until the very end when he was scheduled to testify about the top guy when he supposedly jumped out of his his room window. I was I was interested in why the district attorney knowing how important this next day was going to be, didn't put in a whole new group or add additional security for that one night since he knew the next day was critical? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I guess it wouldn't have been surprising if they, if they had done that. The thing is that they didn't do that. They had this rotating shift of guards who were protecting not just Abrellas but other informants on the sixth floor of the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island. They thought they had the place on lockdown. They also had patrolmen from the local precinct downstairs at the at the entrances to the hotel. I think and they, they had built a steel door at the entrance to the um, corridor of rooms where the gangsters, the informants were staying, which, by the way, was known as the rat suite. I think they really thought that they had that they had the place protected. Fascinating. Let's take a break. My guest, former New York Times editor and Time Magazine reporter Michael Cannell, is author of the new book, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc., published by Minotaur Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Cannell, go to michaelcannell.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Michael Cannell. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You think you know Vegas? But how much do you really know about this neon city? See the dark side of the bright lights at the Ma Museum where you can explore how a tough little town transformed into a gaming metropolis with a little help from organized crime. You won't find these stories of lawbreakers and law enforcement, mob bosses and prosecutors anywhere else. The Ma Museum in downtown Las Vegas. More information at themobmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with former New York Times editor and Time Magazine reporter Michael Cannell. He's author of the new book, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc., published by Minotaur Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Cannell, go to michaelcannell.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Michael Cannell. Michael, when you started to research the material, was there one source 
or one source of documents that was most important from your perspective as an author and researcher? That's a really interesting question. Normally, I would rely mostly on person-to-person interviews. I really believe in the power of interviews to bring a story to life. In this case, it just wasn't possible because these events took place in the 1930s, so there really wasn't anybody left to, to talk to. I did an awful lot of book research. I got an awful lot of FBI files, which were surprisingly unhelpful. So I relied primarily on police records and newspaper accounts. Even just smaller, even neighborhood newspapers from the 1930s, and those happened to contain much of the animated commentary, the interviews, and the quotes that that I would have liked to have collected myself. But they were all there in print in these newspapers from the 1930s. Did you talk to any of the relatives or the heirs of people or the descendants of people who had participated either on the law and order side or the criminal side? I did not. I mean, it seems to be it seems to be my misfortune to find these people only after the book is done. A couple of people came out of the woodwork that were related to these to these figures. In fact, uh, I think that the granddaughter of the of the, the gentleman who went to Hollywood that I mentioned earlier contacted me. I really didn't, and I would really like to have. I I, I just you know I, it's very hard surprisingly hard to find those people, and I don't know that they would have known anything more about the story than I already knew. Sure, that's understandable. If people read your book, one of the lessons was all of this came about because of prohibition, that had they not outlawed alcohol, you wouldn't have had the rise of the National Organized Crime Syndicate. I mean, you still would have these other, as you talked about, loan sharking and prostitution, et cetera. But it seemed to be prohibition that really corrupted the process on a wider scale. Yeah, I think that's really true, because what happened before prohibition is that the bad guys were just local thugs who you know, held people up or they robbed grocery stores. But when prohibition came along, there was so much money at stake and the, the, the possibilities were like low-hanging fruit. And so these kind of neighborhood thugs all of a sudden were running operations, and they were coordinating uh, with other, other, uh, other uh, gangsters, and they were having to coordinate, you know, liquor being smuggled in and then transported on caravans of trucks and selling them and protecting them and hijacking other people's trucks and, most importantly, paying off the police. They learned how to pay off the police during, during, um, during Prohibition. But essentially what Prohibition did was to encourage low-level gangsters to establish um, elaborate networks and, and big operations. Yeah, the franchising that you referred to earlier. Yeah. Another element that comes through in, in your book is there is a blurred line, or seems to be blurred lines. It was subtle, but it was there, between the crooks and the cops in many cases. Not in all cases, obviously. And where some of your heroes in the beginning of the book turn out to be maybe not so much heroes by the end of the book. Yeah, I mean, the, the it's important to remember that in, in those days, the cops themselves were, um, you know, 
one or two generations removed from from immigration, just as the mobsters were. They almost never would have gone to college. They grew up in the same neighborhoods as the mobsters. They went to the same schools. They dated the same girls. There was a kind of incestuousness between the cops and the gangsters that is hard to really understand today. And in these small neighborhoods in Brooklyn, which then were quite isolated, arrangements were made. Arrangements on the street corner. There were payoffs. Um, There were conversations. Um, Things were taken care of. So, uh, you know, so there was there was a kind of give and take between the good guys and the bad guys that it's, it's just a little hard to understand from our perspective. The other thing that you brought out in the book, and it's been known for a while, but it reinforced the interesting concept that J. Edgar Hoover, who was head of the FBI for many decades, denied initially that there was a mob. And yet, clearly there was. And from your research and from your perspective, why was that? Why did he seem to not want to acknowledge the role of organized crime? There's been theories that he was blackmailed by the mob, etc. But what do you think? I mean, it's a really interesting question. I don't have any really particular insight, except to say that there has been speculation that that the mob was something he, for whatever reason, didn't want to take on. He didn't think that he would be the one to bring down the mob. And and for that reason, he, he, he willed it out of out of existence. There is a scene in the book, as you know, where he participates in the surrender of a fugitive mobster called Lepke Bookhalter. And the gossip columnist Walter Winchell is recruited as an intermediary. And I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, it's sort of hard to believe that this is true, but it is Walter Winchell um, a deal is brokered for Lepke Bookhalter's surrender. He surrender's to Walter Winchell, um, who is a gossip columnist, who then in turn turns uh, Lepke Bookhalter over to Jake or Hoover. Fascinating stuff. When you look at the role of organized crime and the commission and Murder Inc., could it have gone a different way, or do you think just once? prohibition started, that was just the way it was going to happen? I mean, I think that's a really good question. There was a time when, in in this story, in the 30s, when the mob was powerful in a way that is just hard for us to fathom. Because they made so much money, and because they paid off so many people, not just in the police, but in the city government, judges, district attorneys, other city officials, right up the line, they were a really formidable force in this country. And I don't think anybody really believed that they could be busted. Thomas Dewey, who later was governor of New York, later ran for for president. He was assigned as a 35-year-old to as special prosecutor to bust the mob. And he had some success in doing that. He put set things in motion that eventually did lead to the downfall of many of these figures. But at the time that he was appointed, 
nobody really thought that, that it would be possible to bust the mob. And yet it obviously had an impact. Not only Dewey, Dewey had an impact, but as more and more governmental agencies got involved on a lot of different levels, not just national, but locally as well in different jurisdictions, there was pressure on the mob against all stemming from prohibition. Had prohibition not been voted into law, then a lot of this stuff wouldn't have happened. Right. I think that's true. More more than anything, what changed, I think as much as anything, I should say, what changed matters was Abe Reles's decision to, to cooperate with the district attorneys and then his mysterious death. Those two, those two events changed the mob's fate in this period as, as much as anything did. Another interesting thing about your book I hadn't thought about it was there, there were both Italian mobs and Jewish mobs. We think more of the Italian mobs because of the organizational aspects of it on a national level and, of course, the films such as The Godfather. But on a local level, especially in Brooklyn and Coney Island, there were these Jewish mobsters and they had their own groups. And so all of a sudden these interesting names pop up that I've never heard of. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix and they get together and you have the Italian and Jewish mobs working together. Right. They had grown up together. I mean, that's the difference between that that second generation of mobsters versus the old so-called mustache peats, the old guys from Sicily and Naples. That second generation of mobsters, had they had grown up together on the Lower East Side and in Brooklyn. They didn't have the same kind of parochial view and prejudices as the as the older guys. And they were that that next that next generation that took over the mob after prohibition, they were simply about profit. They simply wanted to make money. They wanted to run the mob as an efficient money-making operation. And they weren't going to pay the same heed to ethnic differences as the predecessors did. So uh, when Abe Reles came up, he, he toppled a very powerful trio of brothers in Brooklyn called the Shapiro brothers. And he did it by recruiting some um, Italian gangsters from the next neighborhood over. And then he called his little squad the combination because of this combination of Jewish and Italian gangsters. But it was in that situation, it was the Jews who were in charge. Last question, because I know we're out of time. And that is, do you think the commission had the main influence on what Las Vegas started to become in the 50s? I think so. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that, uh, I think that uh, Las Vegas was, was going to be, uh, if not the crown jewel, then a jewel in the holdings of the, um, of the commission's coast-to-coast operation with, with Bugsy Siegel as, as, its, as its local manager. Well, we'll leave it at that. My guest has been former New York Times editor and Time Magazine reporter Michael Connell. He's author of the new book, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Rise and Fall of Murder, Inc., published by Minotaur Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Michael Connell, go to michaelconnell.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Michael Connell. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Hey, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities 
who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.